What's up, you guys? Welcome back to Indirect Message. I'm Lacey Green. For the past decade or so, I think a lot of people feel like they're walking on eggshells in public discourse. I mean, it's no secret, right? There's something strange in the air, there's a lot more policing of speech and discourse, and as a result of that, there's a lot more self-monitoring and self-censorship. In some ways, I think the so-called culture wars are sort of a reaction to that, right? When I look at that discourse on Twitter or YouTube, underneath a lot of those discussions are some shared frustrations. One that comes up a lot, you know, is how dare you call me a bigot because I have different views, uh, different morals, different values. How dare you act like complicated social questions about gender or race, for instance, are, are settled facts. While politically, I tend to differ from people who share those frustrations, I do relate to their experiences. I don't think we're all crazy or imagining this. I, th I think there's been a real shift away from open discussion and dialogue. There are a number of, of interesting statistics that back that up, and we've talked about that. So from there, the question becomes, what do we do about this? I think one of the things we can do is recommit ourselves to democratic norms in public discussions. Recommit ourselves to the critical importance of seeking out other perspectives, um, of questioning ourselves, and exploring the nuances of different issues. And this is embodied in a value that has been getting more media time lately. That value is viewpoint diversity. Lovely in theory, of course, <laughs> but much more difficult in practice. I mean, wars have been fought over this, right? So on that dire note, <laughs> my guest today is Alana Redstone, and she wrote all about the challenges of viewpoint diversity in practice and how we got to this stifling environment that many of us are navigating. Alana's perspective is interesting um, in part because she's a professor of sociology, sort of ground zero for a lot of this. But I love her work because she comes at this from a place of curiosity and compassion, and uh, I love that vibe. <laughs> that, that's, that's my vibe. So I called her up. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I think over a period of years, I just started to see things, probably going back I would say even before, I mean, you, I know 2014 is sometimes a flashpoint. I would say even before then, just things that I was seeing in my department, things that I was seeing with students. And so I had a lot of opportunities, really constant opportunities to sort of watch the discourse unfold, a whole conversation on a lot of topics that touch things like identity, fairness, intent, racism, um, and inequality more generally is just is broken. It's broken in the way we interact with one another, and it's broken in, it's completely broken in how we interact with students. It's interesting that you are talking about this kind of starting amongst your students and fellow faculty members. Mm -hmm. um, this is obviously the, it, the contentions about identity and viewpoint diversity, intent versus impact. All of those conversations are very mainstream now. Right. Would you agree that this started in academia? Is that kind of the genesis of a lot of these ideas? 
you know, there's always this question about, you know, whether is academic culture sort of a, a cause or a reflection of what's going on in broader society. And I mean, it's probably both, but I'm sure there's some, there's some complicated feedback loops there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding of what happened, which may be very wrong, but kind of what my experience was, was that a lot of this stuff, I was a student at Berkeley and a lot of this stuff, we were having these conversations at school um, and it was totally alien to everyone. Like I couldn't just go up to my little brother and be like, you know, let's talk about intersectionality. I can now, mm-hmm. but not at the time. What really seemed to change things is social media. Like a lot of um, these ideas that come from sociology, gender studies departments, humanities in general, got amplified online. And for whatever reason, and I'm not, that's something that I would be curious to know your thoughts on. For some reason, when those were put into social media space, they just went everywhere. Like it it was astounding watching this unfold, really Mm -hmm. watching mainstream uh, media outlets reach out to me, like about these concepts, wanting to talk about feminism, that just blew my mind. Nobody cared about this shit. And it's actually kind of, I mean, we could talk about this later, but there's a little bit of a fear and and, uh, regret about how- Your fear and regret? Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's, what has happened was never in my 18-year-old brain Mm -hmm. around this stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Of course not. There wasn't much in my 18-year-old brain, (laughs) to be fair. I, I don't think you're unique in that respect. Yeah. Well, anyhow, do you feel like social media was one of the main uh, outlets that a lot of this stuff became mainstream? And if you agree with that sentiment, I'm just curious why, why social media blew all of this up? People have developed more complicated theories about sort of social media. And I mean, the, the mechanism that actually changes the way, particularly Twitter, I think, particularly it changes the way people interact. But I mean, a lot of this comes from really binary thinking, um, just like on steroids. And um, social media is just, it is fertile ground for binary thinking. I mean, right? So what's the, what's the enemy of binary thinking? The enemy of binary thinking is nuance, right? And what do you lose? What is the first thing to get jettisoned on Twitter is nuance. Um, <laughs> oh, so I think, I, yeah, I think it's absolutely how it played a role. I mean, there's no question. Yeah, I I think I was reading an article. You were the interviewer, I think, and you were talking about this concept of splitting. Oh yeah, yes. This is this feels related. Yeah, this idea that we need to see people as all good or all bad. They're mm-hmm. either monsters or angels, mm-hmm. and we're very uncomfortable with ambiguity. Like we can't hold space to to feel multiple things. Um, and I, I think that is manifested a lot on social media. My sense in this is that a lot of, you know, what we're seeing, the social media, the sort of viewpoint diversity, certainly what's happening on campus, um, campuses more generally, not just my own, um, is really a problem of moral legitimacy. I mean, I have my own theories about sort of where it originated, but we at some point just lost the ability to see that there or to consider that there are other perspectives on all of these, particularly these issues, you know, identity, fairness, intent, racism, et cetera, inequality, that could be morally legitimate. And, you know, a morally legitimate position would be something like, you know, I think that we should all be allowed to walk down the street and not get punched in the face, right? Like this would be, a, um, this would be an inarguable morally legitimate person. And in other words, there's no way to hold that opinion and 
have your character questioned. In fact, we would rightly question somebody who didn't hold that opinion. Um, and a morally illegitimate position would be, you know, I think that we should kick dogs for fun, right? Like that would be a morally illegitimate position in the sense that there's no way to hold that position and not rightly have your character called into question, right? And so somehow on this, on these issues, we have largely lost the ability to sort of see moral legitimacy in a broader sense. And there's, and that I would say comes from something that I'm calling the certainty trap. So if I'm understanding, understanding what you're saying, right, we are turning a lot of these bigger questions into moral absolutes. So, so the certainty trap really is the idea that, that the way, the path forward to constructive in, uh, disagreement is, um, to find the uncertainty and find the conversation. And that just, and just before I kind of say more, what I mean by that is not just some kind of, I'm going to find the hole in your argument and I'm going to point it out and I'm going to pull the rug out from under you and I'm going to win. Like, that's not what I mean. I mean that, look, on these issues, there's a lot of uncertainty and you have, and you're the, I own mine, you own yours. So, so the first um, sort of fallacy is the settled question fallacy. So treating, just as it sounds, treating questions that don't have definitive answers as though, as though they do. So this could be, for example, um, what is the relationship between gender and biology? Or this could be, you know, what is the cause? What are the causes of inequality in educational attainment or inequality in anything else? And so just treating those as though they have certain answers, I'm sorry, definitive answers um, when they don't. And I, the second one is the fallacy of known intent, which is just as it sounds. Um, and the third one is the fallacy of equal knowledge. And the fallacy of equal knowledge is that is the idea that what makes disagreement is that you just don't have the right information. And if you knew what I knew, if you just knew, if I could just tell you, then you would agree with me. And I think the way to think about that, if it, if it doesn't make sense, is just to, with the following question. You know, if we all had the same information, would we all agree about, you know, whether to use race in college admissions? Right. And the answer is clearly no. Like we would clearly that would not bring us all on the same page. Using that framework, I think, can be I think it can be helpful mm -hmm. to help people understand that. Someone who has a different idea about this isn't necessarily um, coming from a place of malice or ignorance, that maybe there right. is a legitimate argument to be made that isn't morally wrong, mm -hmm. you know, or, or is morally ambiguous even. I think, and I think you can do more than that. I think, I think what I, what I do is I would just say, look, like there are, like take the race and college admissions example. Yeah. If all you know about someone is that they are opposed to the use of race in college admissions, like, could they be a sort of abhorrent racist? Um, yeah, of course. There are people who are, I mean, there's no question that those people are out there. But then the question is, you know, are there any other reasons other than racism that someone could have that position? And usually pe most people are sort of do recognize that it is possible. And so, you know, then you can say, well, if all I know about you is that you hold this position that I find rather objectionable, uh, what do I do? Do I just assume 
should, I mean, ha- I don't know why you're holding that position. I've just acknowledged that there are multiple possible reasons why you might hold them, hold that position, one of which is morally legitimate, one of which isn't. But I can't tell the difference. And so how do I want, what do I want to do? How do I want to respond? And what does it mean if I'm going to, if my default assumption is always going to be that it comes from a place of racial animus? And what does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we talk to each other? How do you have a society if that's, you're going to be, if that's sort of how we're going to talk, how we're going to treat each other? Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I guess what that makes me wonder is how did we get into this really binary mode of thinking to begin with? I mean, I think humans are sort of predisposed to thinking in absolutes. That's kind of how we've navigated our survival for all of time. We live in a more sophisticated world now. So we're up against those sort of, you know, maybe primitive reactions that we have. You know, academia at least when I was in school, and I think hopefully for some people still, is a place where we should invite open inquiry, where discourse and asking difficult questions is the norm, because it's really important that we have institutions where we can do that um, for a whole load of reasons that hopefully are obvious to most people who listen to this podcast, because I've been talking about them for years. Um, So my question for you would be kind of, how did we get into this binary mode of thinking, not only did we slip into it, it seems, but it sort of became the required way of of engaging, right? If you aren't a binary thinker, and I feel this all the time, mm-hmm. if you feel like, oh, maybe they have, there are some merits to this other argument, suddenly I'm a bad person for even thinking that it's not binary. Do you have ideas about how that happened? I do. I don't know if they're right. <laughs> I mean, I have my, I have sure. my theories. What are your um, theories? Yeah. I mean, so- Questioning only happens uh, on things where we recognize that some there's some doubt, right? And so you can't even if you tell if I hold some if I have a belief that is so cherished and that's held so tightly that I have come to see it as being actually true, an actually true reflection of the world. Why would I? That's not up for debate. Like, why would you criticize that? You're not. Then your criticism is not. It's not a different viewpoint. You're denying reality or you're right. This is so there's a substitution that happens. Mm. One of the issues, obviously, a lot, a lot of what this comes up around are issues of identity. And so just by way, just I think some background is helpful here. So when you when you look at measures of racism in the end of the second half of the 20th century, right, everything moved in the direction that you would want it to, right? All of the measures about, you know, do you think that this group is lazy? And do you think that this group is, you know, how would you feel about intermarriage? And all of those things, whether down or up, like they went in the direction that you would want them to go in, in terms of being less racist and more tolerant and and all of those things. And I think that at some point, you know, or maybe over a period, maybe it wasn't a, a moment, but sort of over a period of time, people, including in sociology, Uh, but other disciplines as well, sort of would look around and say, I I don't mean to say this is restricted to academia, but, and say, well, okay, well, all these metrics went in the direction that we want them to go in, but, you know, racism isn't gone. Then it becomes, well, okay, well, if we saw these metrics go down, so how do I know they didn't just go down because people just, you know, the social norms changed and people just changed their answers, right? The social desirability bias, and they just told me what they thought I wanted to hear. Right. So we still want to understand racism. So what do we do? Okay. Well, we now need new measures. And so, well, what's correlated with racism? Well, turns out things like having a more authoritarian parenting style or opposition to affirmative action, 
these things tend to be correlated, whether a, whether a strong correlation or weak correlation, with racism. Because traditional sort of overt racists probably are opposed to affirmative action. Many of the, many, some may have a more authoritarian parenting style. And so then you start to use these measures, and this is still done. And you've made this, you've gone, you've made this leap. It doesn't actually mean that anybody who opposes affirmative action is racist, right? We just covered that. That's the moral legitimacy piece, right? You can't use, um, you can't use opposition to affirmative action as a measure of racism once you realize that there are morally legitimate ways, excuse me, reasons to have concerns about or to oppose affirmative action. Once you recognize that, the measure doesn't work anymore. Hmm. You're talking about a shift in the way that research was done, right? The, the questions that were being asked? Yeah, but, but it's research, but it's also, see this in, in, in discourse more generally that, you know, if this person isn't on board with this particular policy or this particular, you know, with, or take the, you know, issue about gender, you know, I, if someone's channeling the, if I'm channeling the argument, you know, I think trans women should not be allowed to compete in women's category sports. Again, I'm not endorsing or condemning an a position here, but that there are morally legitimate and morally illegitimate reasons someone could hold that position. And if you don't recognize the legitimacy or the potential for legitimacy, of course you're going to condemn everybody who holds it. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds me of a lot of the conversation when I was a student was sort of this this uh, switch from overt, overt racism or misogyny was a thing of the past, and now it's all about covert. And mm-hmm. when we talk about covert, you know, now we're getting into some maybe more subjective interpretations. If I'm talking to a man and, you know, you have things like mansplaining, right? Mm-hmm. And all of these concepts sort of emerge out of a, a desire to understand or pinpoint what covert isms look like. So that seems to give a lot of subjective leeway, right, to right. Co- sort of maybe project, read into, or in some cases, correctly identify more subtle uh, expressions of injustice or inequality. And in that switch, when I was a student, we were also talking about sort of how this is all part of the system. And in order to dismantle this, you know, patriarchy or systems of injustice, we need to be able to identify how people covertly create those systems. So Mm -hmm. to me, that seems to be creating sort of the the groundwork Mm -hmm. for now I'm going to start looking for, and this is something I myself did um, and feel some level of shame, but also I think my um, intentions were pure, you know, sort of looking for uh, this kind of stuff in the people I was interacting with, Mm -hmm. especially if they were from a privileged group, right? Now I'm looking for you as a white man to do or say something that seems to match my idea of what sexism looks like in the 21st century, right? And some of those things were really were sexist, to be fair. Sure. But sometimes I, I also think, you know, I felt pressure to kind of read into things more than I should have. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And I mean, nothing that I'm saying, you know, and and I think that we're on the same page suggests that that there isn't real racism, that there isn't real sexism, there isn't real misogyny. Um, you know, but when you get into the world of covert, part of what you're doing, I mean, remember the second fallacy that I talked about in the certainty drop is this, the fallacy of known intent. You can say intent doesn't matter, right? And that's right. And so that's but now, okay, if you've said intent doesn't matter, 
then that has a particular set of prescriptions. So now if intent doesn't matter, then it's, you have now completely erased moral legitimacy. If you want to do that, then don't also say that you care about, you know, viewpoint diversity or ideological diversity or whatever, because those two things are incompatible. The other thing that I would say about covert is that, and it's actually something that I was talking to students about today in a class, it's it's based on an it's oftentimes based on an interpretation of an interaction that has multiple possible explanations. Like, is it the case that we should always trust everyone's interpretations of their experience? Like, so you can imagine like some interaction that goes sideways, and somebody says, well, you know, I feel that I feel that was sexist or I feel that was racist, and they it was you know I'm not talking about sort of assault or I'm not talking about sort of egregious stuff. I'm talking about the stuff that's in the court of gray area, and you could say. Well, what is my obligation to the other person? Is my obligation to, right? I have an obligation, I would say, to listen to them, to validate their experience, to sort of listen to their, to validate their feelings. Am I also obligated to trust their interpretation of the interaction? Is that part, is that part of my obligation? Should it be part of my obligation? Right? What if the person gets it wrong? I mean, I know I, I mean, I know I get things wrong. When I have interactions that go sideways in my own life, I mean, God, I get it wrong all the time. You know, there's an argument to be made. I, I'd be willing to entertain that argument. I think we'd have to think through the implications of what that means, because we do sometimes get it wrong. If that's going to be the position, then you're, what you're also saying is we're going to adjust our norms so that the most sensitive person in the room, the community, whatever, is comfortable. And that's going to be hard. So I mean, I'll just give you an example. Like there was a group that I worked with uh, once and they, there were some members of that group um, who were offended by the use of the word healthy. I don't think they were making it up. Like I think they were legitimate. They found it um, to be exclusive and sort of, and sort of normative about body type and diet and lifestyle in a way that they found objectionable. So Okay, well, if you've said that intent doesn't matter and that you want and that, right, so now what are you going to do? Are you going to tell people to stop using the word healthy? Mm-hmm. Again, you could say, well, that's an extreme example. That's kind of silly, but, but this is, but there are, there are endless, an endless number of examples like that. Um, and I would just, I would just, to, just to finish that thought, you know, one of the reasons why this is hard is because, you know, in a community, in a campus community, in a workplace, you know, people's feelings do matter, right? I mean, they just, they just do. No one wants to be in a community where people are just given free reign to run roughshod over everybody, right? Like no one, no one wins in that situation. Part that has to be part of a conversation. You know, what is your goal? Is your goal, if viewpoint diversity is part of your goal, I mean, I certainly think it should be, you're going to have, you can't say, I value viewpoint diversity, but here's this, but, but I'm also going to make sure that no one is ever offended. It's not Mm -hmm. because because of this moral legitimacy piece, right? It goes back Mm -hmm. to this moral legitimacy piece. I guess a lot of what I'm trying to do in my work is re sort of reconnect with this idea of this broader sense of morally legitimate or potentially morally legitimate positions. I hope that makes sense. Yes, it does. I think you've touched on an area of tension in my own process with this. Mm -hmm. Like um I really do value viewpoint diversity. I also feel like if somebody is speaking about their experience of, you know, being treated 
in unfair way or because of their skin color or sex or gender mm-hmm. or whatever. I just believe them. I, I'm I'm I have no like personal agenda to or in that moment, in that exchange, I don't have any like inclination to be like, is is that really what happened? You know, because mm-hmm. in that human moment, I am hearing about someone's frustration or anger about an injustice that whether or not it was objectively an injustice, they are feeling that right mm-hmm. then, right? Right. So I have a hard time reconciling those things because I never want to find myself in a situation where I'm pulling the rational bro and being like, but, you know, was that actually racism? Oh, was I'm not that suggesting, actually- yeah. I'm not suggesting that I would say that to anyone, yeah. I just, I think that's one of the things that can be difficult yeah. in, in navigating this. And when you're, we want to go- f- all out for viewpoint diversity, I think you hit on one of a really important uh, reality here, which is that we'll have to have a tolerance for being offended, mm-hmm. right? And maybe the solution is not um, to be like, we need to question the legitimacy of those claims, but we need to question what we do about them and how mm-hmm. we handle them. You know, if I perceived a misogynist slight, what's the recourse there. Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to go on Twitter and, you know, mm-hmm. slam this person? How do I handle that? And I think a lot of where I've been at the past few years is kind of, how can I be accountable for my own responses without mm-hmm. also, without saying, you know, that was okay. It wasn't okay. But also the way that I deal with it is in my control. Mm-hmm. I don't have to move through the world as a victim, even if people do victimize me. I've decided for myself, I have really nothing to gain from that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting point. And, and yes, I'm not suggesting that we should be like, you know, sort of callously questioning, you know, this, you know, know. sort of I'm so I'm talking about rational. like the internet argument around this is usually pretty callous. Yeah, not, not, I mean, how you behave in relationships with, you know, with people that you're close to. I mean, obviously that's different. And totally, um, totally. you could say, when should we be separating just bad behavior from something that's racist or sexist, right? Like, so for example, I have no horse in this race. I don't know this person. I have no interest in defending him. But if you look at the case of Ilya Shapiro, um, who's at Georgetown Law School, I don't know if you followed this. Uh, Yeah, I think I did see something about this. You know, he put this thing on Twitter about um, the Supreme Court nomination and and his favorite candidate was is Sri Srinivasan and um and he says this makes this comment about how you know something about he uses the term a lesser black woman and that's a quote from his tweet and so I, this is at Georgetown and so there's this been this backlash and you know and I've talked about this with students um I think many people would agree that at a, you know that saying you know using the term lesser black woman is inartful given the time and space you would like to think that people would choose to not say things like that in those words. Now, is he racist? I have no idea. The guy could be a total, he could be a total hardcore racist. From that tweet, can we conclude that he's racist? From that tweet alone, maybe he's a total asshole. Like, I, I have no idea. Um, but is he racist? And so sort of separating sometimes or or at least allowing for the possibility or the question to be asked, should these be separated? Social consequences for being an asshole are a lot different than the social consequences for being racist. Mm-hmm. And rightly so, right? And they should be. If I understand correctly, you're saying that calling him a racist has way more 
um, like social implications. And we need to ask ourselves if the crimes, if the punishment sort of fits the crime, right? And I think there, there is a school of thought that's behind a lot of this that, you know, we're all racist, we're all sexist, you know, everybody is this thing. And so, you know, I have some conflicting feelings about that because what you're saying is that we should be careful with that label because it that we need it to have weight. We need it to mean something. Um, whereas the school of thought that I used to prescribe to that, that I question now that everyone we, we need to think of everyone as a racist, it seems to take some of the power away, right? If everyone's a racist, then, you know, what, do, what are we going to call it? How are we going to distinguish when someone does something really important? So, I mean, I have conflicting feelings about it too. Like I'm somewhat sympathetic to it. Um, but it does still, when it comes to how are we going to engage with each other and how are we going to communicate across, right? Like with different pe- with people with, with viewpoint across um, diverse viewpoints and diverse perspectives, that position, if you're going to act on it, does take, again, it does take moral legitimacy and intent out of the equation. It just, because you start with the question of, I know there's racism, where is it? I'm going to find it. Because it, it, the question is then always, how did it manifest? And so if you don't find rate, like, so for example, like this is the thing with unconscious bias, like, let's say you're in a group and you're trying to look for evidence of unconscious bias. And let's say you don't find any, I don't even know what that would look like or how it would be measured, but let's just say you don't find any. Is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? That you didn't, that you didn't find it. I don't know. You didn't look because you'd assume it's there. It's failure, always there. Right? right. But it would always be a failure if you didn't find it in, right. in that paradigm because it should right. always be there. Right. And form. if you don't find it, then look harder. Right. And that's a pro- I think that's a deeply problematic way to view the world if part of what you want to do is is interact with the, again a, a diversity of perspectives because that's mm-hmm. that's just that is extremely narrow. Uh, it's interesting. I feel like we've sort of fallen into one of the discussions that I wanted to have with you organically, which is, you know, what are some of the challenges to really fully leaning into this idea and this value of, of viewpoint diversity? Um, you know, what is it going to ask of us and what does it look like? Are there other um, barriers that you've experienced with your students or just in your work in the media that make it hard for us to really embrace viewpoint diversity and enact it in our discourse? I really think that those three fallacies that I outlined, I think that they, I mean, there have been students that I've talked to and as I talk about this at the beginning of the semester, I have actually this semester, I had a student say about the settled question fallacy. He was like, oh my God, now I see it everywhere. He's like, it's everywhere. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It's everywhere. Um, and In so every think, culture war debate, both sides too. It's yes, just on both sides, no yes. There's no conversation. Yep. This is the reality. That's it. This is the certainty trap. Yes. I actually, part of what I find frustrating is that I don't, I don't actually think it's that hard to solve. Um, it's really, it's not that hard. Um, and it's enormously frustrating because, but you have to be willing to say, oh, that thing, that, that belief that you have about the world about, you know, that has to do with, you know, whatever identity, fairness, intent, et cetera, that's actually also subject to criticism. And someone could ask questions about that and not be some kind of monster. Like, and you have to let go of that as long as sort of part of what you're doing is recognizing, and I said this at the beginning, recognizing your own uncertainty. If you come at these things and you say, look, actually, I'm going to tell you here, I'm going to convince you why whatever it is that I'm saying is right, why, you know, 
systemic racism is a myth or whatever the argument, you know, whatever some of the, those arguments are, that's not going to work. Now you're taking the certainty trap and just applying it somewhere else. So everyone just needs to be a little less sure of themselves. You don't even, I wouldn't even say it's so strong as to uh, say, you know, you have to be willing to be wrong. That's a little too strong and that might be off-putting to some people. You just have to be a little less sure that you're right. There's one more question that's kind of related to all this that didn't come up, which is this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion is, oh, yeah. um, I think, I think rightfully kind of taken the stage um, and is, has become a more central part of the conversations in academia and social justice, politics, whatever. Um, but it always struck me as strange that viewpoint diversity wasn't part of that. Um, we have this long list of, you know, identity aspects. There's even religion on there, which actually is a type of viewpoint diversity. Do you think that we should maybe, it would help to maybe be a little bit more uh, overt <laughs> about including this in the conversation and including this in um, efforts to become more diverse and multicultural places? That's a great question. Um, I think that when it comes to sort of DEI efforts sort of in their traditional form, you can't, you really can't just add viewpoint diversity to a long list of, you know, racial and ethnic diversity and, and gender diversity and religious diversity and everything else. You really can't just add it to the list because the problem is, I mean, quote unquote problem, um, is that it, by adding it, you're essentially reshuffling the deck. And so, because you're saying, actually, if we're going to bring in viewpoint diversity, that means that part of what you can question is, how much we should be, for example, how much we should be focusing on racial and ethnic identity, right? Now that's, mm. and, right, and that's one of the foundational ideas under, under DEI. And so if you bring in viewpoint diversity, you're sort of, you're, so it is, I think it's absolutely essential to do, right? But it's, but it is not quite as simple as just adding something to the list. Mm. Um, and I would say that part of, you know, sort of traditional DEI programming and why it's become much of it is misguided is because it is literally predicated on the certainty trap. It is predicated on assumptions that are taken as given about the role of intent, about it, about inequality, about how we should think about identity, how we should think about solutions to these problems, how to weigh the costs and benefits. It treats all of these things as given. Mm. And that's in their current conception. In their current conception, yes, it treats them right. And so that already forecloses viewpoint diversity. That's not going to work. I mean, again, so you could say, well, why should anyone care about this, right? And so there are, I would guess, say there are three arguments why. One is sort of a moral argument, right? Like, well, we should care about this because we recognize that there are, we have a, sort of, it's part of our social contract to communicate with one another and to not see each other as monsters, um, you know, et cetera. Do right by each other. Yeah, it's a sort of do right. So it's part of this, again, this sort of broader idea of, a, you know, whatever, social contract, if you want to think of it that way. There's a practical argument, right? So if you want to look at, for example, an election, you could say, well, there are 74 million people who voted for Trump in the last election and 83 million people who voted for Biden. So as a practical consideration, your campus, your school, your whatever your workplace organization is, you have this diversity anyway. Do you want to deal with it? Um, and then there's a Democrat. Then there's an argument about democracy, 
right? There's an argument about sort of democratic norms and what it's going to take, what democratic norms need to survive. So however you want to motivate it, you end up at the same place. And that place, like it is one where you're going to have to allow for some nuance. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. I guess I'm just kind of curious about, I'll need to sleep on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This idea that viewpoint diversity maybe undermines DEI. That's kind of what you're saying, right? Like it. I'm saying it could. It could because people could argue that they could argue with viewpoint diversity against DEI. And so maybe there needs to be a line of, of where we agree and what what are the bounds of debate? I do think that there are ways to do it that are better. Um, I think sort of having, you know, just sort of obvious things like treating people with, everybody should be treated with dignity and respect. Both intent and feelings matter. Uh, if you have two people who are interacting in, in, in a break room or something, and one of them is or of Asian descent, and one of them is not, say the one who is not Asian says, you know, I have this, you know, math problem or something that I would really like you to help me with or something. Um, well, so traditional programming might say, well, this is a this is a microaggression, right? Because of the stereotypes involved. So no matter how you view it, that's kind of not a great thing to say, right? But there's another way to view it that says, look, it's not necessarily wrong because it's a microaggression. You could label it that way, but it's actually wrong because the person who said it is not seeing that person, in this case, the Asian person in the break room, as an individual. And it's wrong because they're not seeing them as an individual. They're seeing them as some sort of group stereotype. And that's why it's wrong. And so you get to the same place, but without making the same assumptions about intent. Does that make sense? Mm, Yeah. yeah. In both scenarios, you're still condemning that behavior. You're Mm -hmm. just, you're getting there from a different, from a different place, from in a a different path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one does so with respect for viewpoint diversity. I think so. Because it's not making assumptions about, it doesn't make the same assumption, the sort of same ideologically based assumptions. It's starting from a place that's saying, look, people need to be treated as individuals, not as members of groups. And they need to be, everyone needs to be treated with dignity and respect. Full stop. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, you guys. And thank you to Alana for making time to chat with me. If you'd like to see more of Alana's work, I'd highly recommend her book, Unassailable Ideas. Much love, you guys. I'll see you again soon.